0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today we're joined by Edward A. David, author of A Christian Approach to Corporate Religious Liberty, just published in 2020 by Palgrave McMillan. Edward, thanks so much for being here. It's great to have you.
0: Ryan, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, congratulations on the wonderful new book, A Christian Approach to Corporate Religious Liberty. I'm very excited to talk to you about it, but before we get into the book, would you mind sharing with us a little bit about yourself?
0: Yeah, so I'm a, a postdoctoral research fellow in the Faculty of Theology and Religion uh, at Oxford. I'm specifically part of an institution called the Oxford Character Project. And our remit is really the study uh, of character and the study of responsible leadership within corporate settings. I'm very much looking forward to um, diving into this work. I'm a a new postdoctoral research fellow um, here at Oxford. Um, But prior to that, I was at the University of Oxford as a DPhil student, or a PhD student, working on law and religion issues. Um, And I wrote a thesis on corporate religious liberty which then turned into uh, uh, this, this book with Paul Grave Macmillan. So I'm currently working on character with the Oxford Character Project, but I'm also uh, on the side, if you will, working still in the field of law and religion. And I find it uh, this crossover between both character and virtue and religious freedom or law and religion to be a really rich area of uh, investigation.
1: That's absolutely right, Edward that is one of the things that makes your your book so interesting such a unique approach so let's let's get into it why don't we in in a nutshell yep. you are you are seeking to challenge some of the the terms of the debate around corporate religious liberty we'll get into some of the terrain of the debate in just a moment but in summary what is your proposal and what are you hoping to contribute in the the overall argument of your book
0: yeah, I think um, maybe to discuss the the main points of this book, it might help to uh, draw our attention to I think a really useful political cartoon that came out in the wake of Burwell v. Hobby Lobby Stores Incorporated, um, which was the twenty fourteen U.S. Supreme Court case that dealt with the religious freedom claims of a closely held for profit corporation. And that corporation's objection to supplying uh, certain contraceptive services and uh, contraceptive uh, devices, etc., to employees, right? There's a religious objection to this. So let me just draw attention to the cartoon, and then I can get to the, like, the main points, uh, my main proposal of the book. So in this political cartoon... It depicts two people conversing uh, kind of in a corporate penthouse. And the first person, who's presumably an employee, uh, asks with a bit of indignation on his face. And he goes, you don't pay minimum wage? And then the other person across the desk uh, responds pretty matter-of-factly and says, it's against my religion. And this is an unsurprisingly stoic response from... This latter person who happens to have a skyscraper for his head, and now sitting on the desk uh, here is a sign, It's like a nameplate that says, "Corporations are people too." And so, what this political cartoon is conveying, it's it's uh, it's getting to that uh, that idea that causes so much friction in public discourse around what is the moral status of corporations are they like human persons that deserve moral respect moral rights and then translated to legal rights legal rights to religious freedom now my book takes issue with kind of basing our conversations around the ethics of corporate religious freedom on the the metaphor of corporate moral personhood or corporate personality. And I find that these, um, these metaphors uh, can be really distracting. So instead of asking, you know, is a corporation a moral person that deserves moral rights and legal rights by extension, I'm proposing something different. And I'm proposing something from the Christian ethical tradition that holds out groups to not be moral persons, but holds out groups as coordinated actions. And when we understand a group like a for-profit corporation through the lens of ethical reasoning, through moral philosophy, as a, a verb essentially, as coordinated action, we can then start to get to the ethical conversation with a bit more clarity. We can talk about the consequences of that corporate action. We can talk about the players, in the corporate action, we can get a, a lot more granularity into our moral discourse that uh, is, at bottom, more useful than uh, kind of invocations of corporate moral personhood.
1: Hmm. It's, it's very helpful. You're entering into a conversation that, of course, has been, has been going on for a little while. You know, I'm wondering as we start to to hear how your proposal is entering this ongoing dialogue. Who are some of the the major voices that you're you're interacting with, and what are some of the major landmarks that that have to be considered as you map out the terrain of this of this conversation?
0: Yeah, that's um, a good question. In a nutshell, there are so many uh, kind of. S- strains to this conversation, right? We can talk about um, so many ideas in uh, political theory, in uh, political theology. We can talk about what groups are. We can talk about the nature of individual rights, group rights. Um, We can talk about what churches are. We can get into whole discussions around ecclesiology. Um, We can get into the nitty gritty in so many fields. And, And that's why this this area around corporate religious freedom is so interesting because theology, philosophy, law, social ontology, sociology, <laughs> psychology, all all play a role in here. Now that said, what I what I find useful is to approach um, to draw together all of these disciplines, these disciplinary discussions that could feed into. Uh, an analysis of corporate religious liberty, I like to think of them through the lens of uh, group ontology, which in a nutshell is uh, the study of what groups are. Um, and I think there's, there's two schools of thoughts uh, around the use of group ontology with respect to corporate religious freedom that uh, are useful to identify. So, Here's the first uh, kind of trajectory or school of thought in this group ontology religious freedom discussion. And that's the uh, view of reductionism. Now, reductionism basically wants to move from an idea of a strongly metaphysical person uh, that is traditionally understood to the church, the medieval corpus mysticum, Moving from that idea, and then throughout history, then going to, say, John Locke's true church, and I say that in quotes, true church, uh, citing his uh, letter concerning toleration. And that true church for Locke is, is now a voluntary society of men, and no longer thought of as the corpus mysticum of medieval ages, where the Eucharist um, and the actions of the Holy Spirit or of, of Christ working in the church really kind of created a, uh, an agent of sorts, like a corporate person. Uh, so with John Locke's church, we are moving to that voluntary association of men with really no discussion of group ontology or a discussion of a strongly metaphysical being that members become incorporated into. So, we're moving throughout history from a strong group uh, metaphysics to potentially no metaphysics with John Locke uh, around the group. And then we get to today's political liberals uh, or liberal egalitarians, amongst whom um, we might consider Cecil Laborde uh, at Oxford University, uh, also um, legal theorists like Richard Schrager and Micah Schwartzman, uh who are both. Um, very bright uh, scholars at the University of Virginia in the United States who have also engaged in the corporate religious liberty debate. And when we get to these political liberals, not not only is the strong group metaphysics dropped, but it's actually in a certain sense um, reviled. I, I, I almost hesitate in using that term um, because... Uh, it's, it's, it's so strong and I, I don't want to paint them as uh, these theorists as completely inimical to some theological ideas, right? However, these, uh, these political liberal theorists do claim that actually group ontology is really morally distracting because when we deal with that what is, what is a group question, they say that, hey, no matter how you cut this, no matter how you define what is a group, at the end of the day, it's going to be our moral uh, or political philosophy that drives the conversation. Anyway, yeah. so I I see this trend of reductionism uh, moving from the strong group realism uh, or strong group metaphysics of the corpus mysticum to today's political liberals. Uh, And the political liberal position really endorsing this reductionism and saying let's leave behind the strong group metaphysics because it's morally distracting in fact let's leave behind group ontology because it's morally distracting and let's just get to the political uh philosophical political moral discussion now i have some thoughts on that in a second but let me identify the second Uh, kind of strand of group ontology that I um, point towards in my book. And that second uh, sort of handling of group ontology we might call um, ecclesialism. And ecclesialism basically takes the position that the the moral protections or the moral rights that we then translate into legal rights that we give to the church – we should expand those rights to for-profit corporations that are ostensibly religious, maybe operated with religious motivation, but actually can be identifiably secular in their activity, right? So the, the selling of arts and crafts as a secular activity, not a distinctively religious activity. Now, ecclesialism says, Hey, Let's not narrowly define the church and the church's protections and restrict those to, say, your traditional uh, hierarchical uh, religious institution, like the Catholic Church, for example. And it's saying, let's kind of lower that ecclesiology and let's spread it out horizontally to other types of institutions that we normally might not claim to be churches like for-profit firms for example. Now uh, the the religion scholar who's um, worked extensively in the religious freedom debates, uh, Winifred Fowler Sullivan, actually wrote a book also in 2020. Um, I think it's called Church State Corporation. Hmm. And uh, it actually came out after I had the, the book kind of accepted and published and I went, oh no, this is just such a fantastic book uh, to to engage with. Yeah. And uh, so she also identifies this this kind of ecclesialism, this extension of the idea of the church and a, like a strong group metaphysics to non church entities like for for profit firms. And so she she doesn't use the term ecclesialism. I do. But she identifies this trend of low church ecclesiology. Again, this, this trend to understand, say, for-profit firms as actually types of churches and therefore as the types of institutions that should receive relatively robust uh, legal protections. Now, Sullivan, just to be very clear, is is not... Making a moral case that ecclesialism or le- low church ecclesiology should be widely adopted, she is certainly not saying that um, and i I have my my criticisms uh, of it as well now so i've I've pointed to reductionism, which wants to kind of get rid of group ontology, and then i've also pointed to ecclesialism which kind of still trades on the the ideas of the or the currency of group ontology yeah. uh, but might want to expand a, a strong group metaphysics to other types of entities and so you can see how these two trajectories can be used on almost polar opposite ends of a, a moral debate on corporate religious freedom on one end uh, religious freedom uh, for corporate entities or organized groups should really be restricted to voluntary associations. John Locke's True Church, the political liberal's ideal type of institution that should receive moral or legal recognition for religious freedom, strong religious freedom claims. And then on the other side, if you accept ecclesialism and the kind of strong group metaphysics that's implied with it, you get those who might claim that not only should churches receive strong, robust corporate religious freedoms, but potentially for-profit firms like Hobby Lobby or say Asher's Bakery in Northern Ireland, where, where you are, should receive also potentially equally robust moral and legal recognition, legal protections in this corporate religious liberty debate. So again, kind of opposite sides of a moral debate. Um, And yeah, I I find uh, that actually we need a middle way. We need a a middle way uh, in this this debate, uh, which has become extremely polarized.
1: Now, before we get to your middle way, you also in the book start to give us some sense of how, how has within the christian tradition corporate religious liberty been understood both in in respect to the church itself and and organizations uh who are religiously affiliated but maybe outside the church so could you talk a little bit about the you mentioned the catholic and and protestant tradition's approach to these questions
0: yeah so what i found in my you know my desire to find a middle way right this this desire to get past the corporate personhood metaphor, the desire to um, kind of combat some of the extremes uh, of the moral conclusions in reductionism and, and uh, ecclesialism, I said to myself, all right, first and foremost, let's check what the churches themselves have to say about religious freedom in general but then also around corporate religious freedom. And uh, just to be clear, when I, when I say corporate, I typically mean organized group. So any sort of organized groups to a wide or broad understanding of, of corporate. So I don't just mean for-profit corporation. So I, want to know, I wanted to know, what have the churches said about religious freedom and corporate religious uh, freedom? In a nutshell, uh, what I did is I, I examined modern ecclesial statements. So, basically, leading up to and around um, the mid twentieth century, you know, around uh, the the formation proclamation of the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights uh, as a kind of landmark treatise on religious freedom, uh, in part. That was established after the Second World War. and I wanted to understand what what the the churches, both especially Catholic and uh, Protestant, widely ecumenical Protestants, uh, including Orthodox churches, understood on these issues. In a nutshell, what I found is corporate religious freedom was really well defined with respect to churches. So with respect to religious institutions as we might traditionally, understand them as, you know, congregations, as institutions that uh, teach, uh, preach a doctrine that uh, educates the young in this doctrine, that uh, evangelize um, and that engage in worship, right? And it's It's to be expected that there would be a really rich and well-developed understanding of the rights of churches, the rights of religious institutions, um, given the long history of of the development of of the church's identity from you know uh, ancient Rome <laughs> and of course p- prior right um, with the people of Israel. so really taking this corporate understanding of who the church is throughout time, throughout uh, the Middle Ages into the the early modern period and today, um, again, really well-defined understandings of there are specific activities, again, around selection of ministers, teaching and preaching, worship, that states really should not be in the business of interfering with. These are kind of sacrosacked areas of of life for religious communities, for churches, that the state, um, at least in the kind of mid 20th century, and moving onwards, the notion was, get out of (laughs) state, please get out of the business of this. Um, And actually churches too, get out of the business of really strong uh, arming states as well, Um, because what we find, especially in the the World Council of Churches' uh, documents around religious freedom, is a real concern that actually Roman Catholic countries, um, prior to the the proclamation of the UN Declaration for Human Rights, uh, were being singled out, or well, rather, were being called out by uh, the World Council of Churches uh, and pointing to the fact that Actually, uh, there were Protestant communities that uh, didn't have kind of rights to public worship in these predominantly Catholic countries where uh, the church indeed had political power uh, in addition to the kind of strong presence of the church in those societies. So anyway, long story short, the churches have a really rich robust, well-developed understanding of church freedoms. And you can see this in these modern ecclesial statements on religious freedom. But what I found is the, the churches didn't have uh, very well-articulated understandings of religious freedom in other group contexts. So in the context of for-profit corporations, in the context of closely held family firms, all of these things, right? and and that may be to be expected right um the the kind of rights of of business if you will uh with respect to religious freedoms weren't really uh of such high concern uh prior to the middle of the 20th century in many uh nations and many societies in large part i speculate because uh you potentially did not have such a large administrative state that uh was promising so many things and reaching so intimately or so closely into um areas of life uh say around reproductive choice <laughs> around sex and the family um so we didn't have these these large administrative states um operating uh with such Close proximity to really hot button or intimate issues, as we do now, for example, say in the in the United States, uh, or even uh, here in the UK. So the upshot of of this is uh, an undeveloped understanding of for profit corporate religious freedom, uh, and what I saw in in the modern ecclesial text was maybe. Uh, a thing or two said about responsibility to uh, wield one's religious freedom claim such that anti-discrimination laws weren't violated, or maybe some some notions that, yes, religious freedom extends to individuals and their communities, right? And this was about the extent to which I I noticed any kind of explicit Uh, things being said about corporate religious freedom for for for-profit firms uh, from uh, official church documents. Okay, now, that said, when Hobby Lobby and the Affordable Care Act that led up to uh, Hobby Lobby, and uh, just to remind some of your viewers, if they're not familiar, the Affordable Care Act that President Obama um, kind of signed into to law, had a contraceptive mandate. And the contraceptive mandate required employers, uh, basically across the board, to uh, pay for uh, the contraceptive services uh, that were approved by the Federal Drug uh, Administration. And some of these contraceptives uh, were also believed to be abortifacients. Uh, so as you might imagine, uh, many employers um of course I should note that uh religious institutions, churches, uh synagogues, uh mosques, etc., were exempt from this contraceptive mandate uh in the first instance. But in other employers, um you can imagine some that had uh kind of traditional religious objections to either abortifacients or contraceptives or both, um you know. Caused some difficulties, uh, to put it mildly, for the Obama administration on this point. And um, what i what we see during this this controversial sort of time, are religious leaders banding together and kind of writing an open letter to the Obama administration. And in in one open letter that I examine in the book, um, these religious leaders define religious institutions as in a nutshell, as virtually any sort of institution that might be created and run with a religious motivation or intention. Now, as you can imagine, that's a very wide definition of religious institution. It moves beyond, say, the corpus mysticum, like the the, the locus for Roman Catholics, um, at least as I interpret in the book of where the Eucharist happens. And the Eucharist is the, the source and summit as Pope John Paul II said of, at, at least the, the Roman Catholic communion. It expands that notion of religious institution into uh, for-profit firms potentially. So Winifred Fowler Sullivan notion of low ecclesiology is, is, is actually happening in this open letter written by an ecumenical mix of religious leaders whereby they use the term religious institution in a very wide sense. And for me this is problematic actually. So while I'm uh, in the book I'm I'm very sympathetic to extending religious freedoms at least in the first instance as a consideration to for-profit firms I resist the the attempt to do that by defining uh, for-profit firms as if they are religious institutions. Um, and why do I resist this? Because religious institutions and the the legal rights and the kind of moral logic or sense that we put behind those legal rights, um, that that moral logic, in my mind, should really be applied to churches in a, a kind of central case. Because once we start saying, as uh, Christian communities, once we start saying, well, no, 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 the the street, the bakery down the street should also be treated like a church, um, then I think it makes Christians look pretty unreasonable, actually. And it it kind of, I think it just pours um, gasoline on the, the kind of culture wars when we try to claim that the for-profit firm down the street should receive robust re- protections as if it were a religious institution. So um, to answer your question, Ryan, you know, I I saw a hole or I see a hole in the, the church's official statements on corporate religious freedom uh, to the point where it, it can just get a bit messy and like the, the descriptive categories blend into these really loose moral categories, which then upsets, I think, and again, adds gasoline to the, the fire of the moral discourse around religious freedom. And it just makes the churches look unreasonable. So part of my task in the book is to articulate some relatively clear principles, I hope, on the, the logic and limits um, of corporate religious freedom and the limits of church freedoms and the scope of for-profit freedoms
1: yeah, that's incredibly helpful, Edward. And so you've you've charted how in the modern ecclesial statements, there's there's some category confusion or at least some some unhelpful precedents that might be coming out here. and And even though that's true of of these modern ecclesial statements from the twentieth century, um part of the solution you've found is actually a retrieval. So you find that Thomas Aquinas can actually help to sharpen some of the categories about how we think about groups ontologically um, as 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 verbs. Uh, so can you talk about some, how how Aquinas becomes a helpful category or a helpful articulator of of some some better categories, and how this contributes to your your positive uh, proposal in the book?
0: Yeah, definitely. So. Yeah, I, I, I love talking about Thomas Aquinas. Um like Flannery O'Connor, I I tend to find that uh having the Summa beside one's uh uh on one's uh bedstand is is a good thing, right beside the Bible, and kind of dipping into this uh this wisdom um is uh of faith and reason, if you will, is is quite edifying. So that said, Aquinas in retrieving some of his insight on this, which also he's retrieving insight from Aristotle, helps us get to a middle way. Helps us get to a middle way between the reductionism and between a kind of potentially irresponsible ecclesialism. So here's what Aquinas has to say on groups. So following um, Aristotle's description of the polis, Aquinas understands uh, organized groups as a composition of parts. So whereas Plato in his Republic almost gets to this point where there's too much sharing amongst uh, the citizens of a state to the point where we might think of that state as like a, this weird hole, right? Where, where, um, where children's parents are... are um, yeah, well, well basically where parents don't know who their children are, et cetera, et cetera, right? Some people point to like a a communism and Plato. Um, Aristotle says, no, 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 okay. This is all really confusing, actually. The state, the polis is a composition of different parts. We have different uh, citizens within this polis. They all have different roles to play. So let's look at the polis in terms of individuals, and the roles that they play towards the end of the state, which uh, is involved in the the flourishing of each individual and the flourishing of the state as a whole, as a group of individuals. Aquinas picks up on this Aristotelian notion of uh, the, the polis as a composition of parts. And viewing this composition of parts specifically from the order of moral philosophy, and the order of moral philosophy takes as its subject matter the actions that are self-constituting of the person, so voluntary actions that are self-constituting. Viewing groups as as a composition of parts and viewing them from the discipline of moral philosophy then, this invites us to view groups as coordinated activity as a composition of not just parts, but a composition of activities and who acts. Well, it's the individual who acts. And individuals have the capacity to intend together, to pursue common ends together, uh, to jointly act so as to bring those ends about. So Aquinas, Again, drawing upon Aristotle's um, method methodology here, views groups as a composition of or a coordination of individual actions. Now, this is really helpful, especially when we're talking about the morality of corporate religious freedom. Right? This is really helpful because already Aquinas has moved us from uh, an ontology. A metaphysics but he's moved us in an organic way to moral philosophy so we're looking at the same phenomenon so it's a phenomenon of individuals who are acting together right so from a metaphysical or an ontological perspective we see the individuals themselves acting right that's the subject matter but we can look at that same phenomenon from the lens of moral philosophy and we can see that these individuals acting together are actually engaging in ethically analyzable action, right? And their coordinated actions together, we view that as, as essentially what, what is a group, You know what the group is doing, a, a group action. So that it's, it's like two sides of a coin, this ontological perspective uh, and this moral perspective so when we take aquinas's coordination of action perspective of groups we can do an ethical analysis of what it, what's happening in the group so for example we can point to the internal public policy of that group um the internal public policy may be the um sort of social norms in the group. It may point to the constitution, like written documents of the group that, that dictate behavior expectations. Think of like an employment contract or something like that. We can look to this internal public policy, which helps coordinate the individual's actions. We can also look at the, the ruler, as uh, Aquinas says, or the authority, or the leaders within the group, who have like a special place in the group's life to help coordinate all those people. So think of the boss that puts together the employment contracts, uh, that helps steer the ethos, the corporate culture, if you will, of that group. We can look at so the leader. We can look at the public policy, and we can say to ourselves, "Okay, are these? Are these?" Uh, means of coordination, are they ethical? You know, is this a good employment contract? Um, Does it elicit the right sorts of behavior, ethical behavior that we want out of individuals? Is the leader herself acting ethically? Is she being an exemplar of moral behavior and helping others kind of live out uh, the ideals of the corporate culture? We can then also look at the individuals themselves, the employees, and go, is that you know employee X behaving uh, and advancing the corporate aim? Um, so what happens when we view groups as a composition of parts or when we view it specifically from the lens of moral philosophy, we can start to get to the granular- granularities of what a group is and we can start to think about, you know, these individuals are doing ABC to promote group and X and uh, maybe person B is doing it in a bad way uh, that is actually causing some some trouble for the rest of the people in the corporation, or maybe that action may be having third party effects, right? So harming other people outside of the corporation. So this is what Aquinas is uh, Ontology of groups allows us to do. It allows us to think with granularity on the moral issues, on the uh, on what's actually happening on a kind of firm-wide level uh, in the organized group.
1: That's great. It's it's easy to see, Edward, how this starts to to sharpen a, what was a really blunt tool, and now there's so much more precision in how we're able to start analyzing group behavior outside of just simply institutional churches. So as we start to wrap up our conversation here, can you start to tease out some of the the take-home applications here as you apply this to how we think about corporate religious liberty? And then maybe just a word about about who this book is for and who might find your your argument to be particularly helpful.
0: Yeah. So actually one one potential case study that that could be uh very useful and 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 this is a a recent case study for us is um you know there was controversy recently uh in the the roman catholic brooklyn diocese um around covid 19 restrictions and so in a nutshell what um uh, what was happening was new york uh new york state or new york city was basically saying all right, churches um, in kind of high COVID-19 red zones where there's lots of cases um, can only have 10 people inside of those churches. Um, Now, the Diocese of Brooklyn, and actually there's Orthodox Jewish community too, that sued uh, against uh, the city. They said, look, we're in the red zone you're only letting 10 people inside however you're letting um, potentially hundreds of people go into uh, the walmart next door and and shop even in this red zone so you're putting no caps on these uh these businesses but you're putting caps on what we're doing now what's where the idea of aquinas's group ontology where this comes in and helps us kind of examine the ethics of restrictions on churches or businesses, again, deals with uh, a close examination of of what a group is or what, what sort of actions are happening uh, in that group. So uh, here's a potential proposal in uh, a church, what the church community is doing, what these coordinating members are doing, they are, Coming together, they're entering that church building. They are picking up hymnals potentially, and they're singing and they're they're worshiping God and they're staying in one place, kind of standing uh, and being there for about you know an hour's time or so, right for a, a service or a mass or whatever it might be. And we can look at that sort of corporate or organized group activity and identify it and describe it in a particular way. Ten or you know, 10 to 100 individuals coming together, standing, singing, potentially creating conditions where COVID can spread um, widely. But then look at uh, your retail store next door where individuals are coming inside and out, potentially with mask on, or hopefully with mask on in you know these red zones potentially not speaking to each other and coming inside and out very quickly. So if we were to think about the, you know, what's collectively happening, if you will, in this retail environment, um, these are two different types of act- actions going on. These are two different types of group actions. And we can start to make distinctions here um, and go, okay, wait a second. Actually, this sort of group action in the church might actually create conditions that are uh, COVID problematic and thus kind of morally problematic in relation, uh, especially in comparison to that for-profit retail activity going on where individuals are potentially not talking and coming in and out relatively quickly. And this is a distinction that uh, Justice Sotomayor made in her, in her um, kind of dissent in um, a case that did end up protecting the Brooklyn diocese and the Orthodox Jewish community. Now in the end, to be just to put you know the colors uh, put my uh, put my flag up, um, I I agree with ultimately with how the Supreme Court um, ruled in favor of the Brooklyn diocese because I think there's other issues to consider. But what Sotomayor brings up, Is actually a really good, I think, um, case study for how a more granular perspective of what groups are and what they're doing can actually help inform the moral discussion, right? So I'm so glad she made that point of actually, these are two different types of group actions, and this should be considered in our moral um, calculus, if you will, of what's going on and whether rights should be extended uh, to these types of entities.
1: Yeah, that's really helpful, and it's easy to start to see all of the the generative um, possibilities uh, that that are opened up as we start to to think through the the particularities that you've you've given us some new tools to to attend to. Well, Edward, you've been so generous with your time with us today. Uh, we could talk so much more about continuing to unpack the implications of your book here, but but if anyone has had their their interest peaked uh where can they go to find out more and then and then maybe what can we be looking forward to coming out from you in the future
0: yeah uh well first of all thanks so much Ryan for for having me on your show and um i just want to touch back to uh, your second question from uh before which was you know who's who's the audience yeah for this book and um i'd say there's there's at least two audiences one would be um Christian communities, right, Christian communities that are struggling with uh, a large administrative state um, that may be impinging upon uh, their corporate uh, activities, their organized group activities. So whether these are churches or whether these are uh, individuals who have uh, theological religious motivations in the workplace, and what I hope is that my book can offer a ressourcement uh, of sorts, you know, a retrieval of a Christian ethical and a group ontological heritage to start to think clearly about you know what is this group that I want protected and what might be the the just limits of the protections that I'm mm-hmm. trying to seek mm-hmm. uh, and a second audience would be. Uh, a kind of broad law and religion uh, uh, group uh, of scholars. So those who are very much interested in the, in the interactions of law and theology and, you know, group ontology, I'd say against, um, you know, the, the statements of uh, scholars that I tremendously respect, Richard Trigger, Michael Sh- Schwartzman, Cecil Laborde you know, Pace, their, their uh, contentions that group ontology is actually super morally distracting. I'd say on the contrary, we have uh, in the Christian tradition, a group ontology from Aquinas and from Aristotle that is actually quite uh, morally useful and morally clarifying. So all that said, I, I hope these audiences find uh, a lot of um, insight and richness from the book they can find out more on my website, which is uh, edwardadavid.com. I'm I'm also on Twitter at Edward in Oxford. Um, and I'm I'm always updating um, with new essays, articles, uh, and whatnot that that come out in the field of law and religion. So I'd really encourage your your listeners to to follow me there and to keep up.
1: Well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much, Edward, for taking the time to come and talk with us about your, your wonderful new book, A Christian Approach to Corporate Religious Liberty, available now from Palgrave MacMillan. Edward, thanks so much for being here.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of The New Books Network. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd encourage you to like, and rate, and subscribe, and do all of those things. But as always, most importantly, if there's anyone that you think of as you were listening to this episode who might find the conversation that we've had here today particularly interesting, I invite you to share it with them. That's the best way to spread the word about what we're trying to do here at the New Books Network. That's it for now, and I hope you have a great day.